historical account is unique because we are told a lot about it before it ever happened. This is, of course, what we call Bible prophecy. Now, as we come to this season, I want to encourage you guys to read slowly through the Christmas accounts that record the events surrounding the birth of our Savior. I want to encourage you guys to do it personally. Maybe you've heard a lot of stories about Christmas. Maybe you have memories of your dad bringing out a Bible on Christmas morning and reading Luke chapter 2. I want to encourage you and challenge you guys to try to do it for yourself, maybe for the first time. There are four Gospels total, Gospel accounts that record Jesus' life. Two of them talk about the birth of Jesus. Does anyone know what two? I already mentioned one, so yeah. Yep, Matthew and Luke, right? Matthew and Luke are the two gospel accounts. And you can easily remember this because in the first two chapters, chapters one and two, both of Matthew and Luke, those are the two chapters that record uh, the nativity scene, if you will. And what you will notice As you read through those two accounts, Matthew and Luke, those four chapters, it won't be hard to notice that what is being recorded is a clear fulfillment of something that was told beforehand. For example, I want want to show you the beginning of the book of Luke, okay? Just for an example, Luke chapter 1, this is the very first four verses, and Luke says this, He says, inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, and it goes on. What I want to put your attention to is he says that word fulfilled when talking about this orderly narrative. You see, Christmas is not just a story, it's history. It actually happened. And it wasn't something that just happened, but it was something that was planned to happen. Now, additional to Luke's account, uh, when we go to Matthew, Matthew starts out with a detailed genealogy. That, That basically is a family tree, if you will. It traces someone's lineage and it points to the legitimacy of the birth of Jesus Christ. And as you look at the Matthew account, as you go and read those two chapters, you'll notice a few things. And maybe, you've, maybe you just know this off memory, and we're going to look at some of them today. There's these times when Matthew, the author, says something along these lines. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled. Everyone say fulfilled means to be accomplished. Or it says, thus it is written. That in the New Testament book, the first New Testament book, the book of Matthew, what we find there is many references to something that was said in the Old Testament. Now, why is this important? And why do we need to know this? Because as I said, Christmas isn't just a story, it is history. And it's not only history, but it's a historical event. It's the biggest historical event that was ever written about before it happened, which then gives us the proof of who it was who came. And so we're going to spend some time tonight looking at these prophecies 
that we might focus our minds as we enter December and we're going to be looking at the legitimacy of the coming Christ stepping from heaven into humanity. And hopefully this will set a tone for us as we look at the things of Christmas, uh, whether it's the trees, the lights, the presents, the cookies, the, the good smells, whatever it might be, that we would have our minds focused on the event that it represents. And so let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would go before us as we spend some time looking at your word. God, we thank you for what Christmas represents, the, the celebration of Christ, the celebration of the Savior. Lord, that if it wasn't for this event that took place, we would still be dead in our sins. We wouldn't know you. We wouldn't have a way to know you. But because Jesus entered this world, Lord, at the promises that you gave in the years beforehand, Lord, we can have confidence that if you kept those promises, then we know that you will keep the promises yet to come. And so we love you and look to you in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. Now, one of the important reasons why you and I need to understand Bible prophecy, and especially those regarding the nativity or Christmas, is because if God is able to keep his promises that he said in the Old Testament, and we see those literally fulfilled, then all those promises that we have in the New Testament, we can know that he's going to keep them. How do you know that God won't take back the eternal life that he gave you? It's because he's never, he's never failed before. He is truly a promise keeper. Now, there is nothing random about the event surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ. Everything that follows within the nativity lies deep within the Old Testament. At every turn of the gospel accounts, Jesus was fulfilling a role that was shaped by more than a thousand years of prediction. It was at the moment of his birth that was the pinnacle of all history before and all history after. If you take a note, you can note down Galatians 4.4. 4. Galatians 4.4. 4. Galatians 4.4 4 says, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Do you see where it says the fullness of time? The fullness of time. This is the right time or the proper time. Or another way to say it is the fulfillment or the totality of time set by God. You see, our salvation is something that God has been planning for a very long time. Rather, he's been planning it since before time even existed. It's clear in the scripture that God's plan for redemption wasn't a last ditch effort. He didn't see Adam and Eve take the fruit and say, uh-oh, we got to do something about that. No, he knew before he even created time, matter, and space itself. The Bible says, Revelation 13, 8, won't be on the screen, that Jesus Christ is the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Meaning that it is so set in plan, God could say, before it even happened, it happened. Now, to us who live in 
time, chronological time, that's a mind blower. We, we, we're not going to be able to fully grasp that maybe ever. Warren Wiersbe says this, Christ's birth at Bethlehem was not an accident. It was an appointment. It didn't happen to be that they had this baby, that they had to go to Bethlehem, that all these things. No, this was an appointment planned by God himself. And it was not only planned, but listen, it was prophesied about. It was told beforehand. This was something that Israel, the nation, should have noticed and should have been looking for. Now, maybe at first they, they, they wouldn't know quite the timing, but as things began to happen, they should have been recognizing and looking for the coming Messiah. You know, I love what Jesus assures the disciples before he attends, ascends to heaven at the end of the book of Luke. Luke chapter 24, verse 44. This is the end. He's about to ascend. Notice what Jesus says. Then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was with you that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Now, this would not only include the prophecies surrounding his birth, but also his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. Among these, there are many that were fulfilled during his first coming. And we're going to look at some of those tonight. But the rest of them will be fulfilled during his second coming. Now, I believe it's important that you and I know the facts surrounding Christmas because we live in a world, we live in a country where now Christmas is nothing more than good feels. We must be grounded in the fact that while the feels of Christmas are awesome, the facts of Christmas are life-changing if we know them and receive them. The feelings that Christmas brings can be awesome, but the facts can change our very lives and the lives of those around us. Why? Why is it so life-changing? And, and what does it even matter that it was told about beforehand? What's the deal? Well, it is the Christmas story that displays the goodness and faithfulness of God. When God says, listen, Everyone look at me. When God says something will happen, it happens. And the coming of Christ proves this. God has always spoken and acted in real history. Through actual events and real human lives, he has made us promises and he's kept them and called people to record them and remember them, all for the sake that God would say to you during this time, he can be trusted. God would say, trust me, because I have kept my promises. You see, Christmas is about a God who promised men and women long before that he would send a savior to them to save them and give them hope. And it's about that God delivering on those promises centuries later at the place and the moment of his choosing through the birth of his son, Jesus Christ. You guys know in the Christmas story when the heavenly host, the angels begin to sing? It's an amazing scene 
right, with the shepherds. They get the message, and, and then we're told that they say, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. See, one of the reasons I think that the angels were so stoked, they were so excited, was because they remember those very promises that God promised to Abraham, that God promised to Isaac and Jacob and to Moses, and that he promised the, the Israelites time and time again that there would be one who would come and who would set them free and save them. You see, the angels couldn't help but praising the promise keeper. Now, the Old Testament, I want you to note this down. I believe it's important for us to recognize. The Old Testament was completed 400 years before the birth of Jesus, okay? So Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, not just by uh, order in our Bibles, but also by date. Malachi is the it, uh, the end. And it's not till 400 years later that we see Jesus showing up on the scene. Those 400 years are known as the years of silence. And I say that because the Old Testament that, listen, not one more word was written down in the Old Testament for, until 400 years before Jesus was ever born. And within that Old Testament, there contains more than 300 references to the Messiah, to the Christ, to the Savior, um, that were literally fulfilled in Jesus's life, okay? So out of that 300, if you do some calculations, let's go safe, let's go on the eight side. Let's say if eight of those prophecies were literally fulfilled, people have done calculations and the probability of one person fulfilling not just 300, but only eight is a ridiculous number. The chance of that happening is between one and 10 to the 17th power, or another way to put it is a one with uh, uh, 17 zeros behind it, or 100 quadrillion. Now that's a number our mind simply can't fathom, and science would simply put it this way, it is impossible unless, unless there is some divine intervention. And certainly there was. Now, that's an amazing truth for us to meditate on. And, and as, as we talk tonight, I want you to realize that there are, you guys know what a synonymous term is, a synonym? Uh, it means it's one word that, that you know, uh, has a parallel meaning with another word, a synonym. Messiah, Christ, and Savior all mean the same thing. They're not only just synonyms, they are literally different languages, Okay. Christ, I believe, is, uh, is it Greek or is it Latin? I don't know. It's a different language. Obviously, Messiah uh, is Hebrew. Uh, and then, of course, you have Savior. But, but those three things, when we talk about Christ, Messiah, Savior, they're all meaning the same thing, which obviously means uh, Savior. Now, tonight, out of all these prophecies, there's, there's a lot that we can look at. We're not even going to look at, we're definitely not going to look at 300. Uh, we're not going to look at eight. We're going to look at three, 
that all kind of, we're going to look at at least three categories. Some of them have more than one uh, regarding the Savior's family, the Savior's birth, and the Savior's location, all kind of revolving around what we call the nativity. You can go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter one, okay? We're not going to be there just yet, uh, but we are going to find our way there for sure. Matthew chapter one. Now, out of these nativity prophecies, the first one that we're going to look at is uh, kind of revolving around the Savior's family. Who would be his family? Who would he be related to? From what lineage and line would he come from? This is one of the ways that the Jews would be able to know. Because there were potentially those who were from, uh, th that came up and said that they were the Messiah. And one of the ways to truly test, and not the only way, but was, well, are, who are they related to? You see, this was a big deal. That's why we find in Matthew chapter 1, what do you find? You find a long list of names. This was something that was important to the Jews, whether it came to what tribe they were involved in. It was a big deal who they were related to and, and where they came from. Now, uh, like for myself, I'm what you call a mutt, uh, meaning I don't even know what I am. I'm a whole bunch of things. I'm a whole bunch of white, okay? I don't know what it is, but it's, it's a whole bunch of European countries. Uh, but back then, that's not really how it was, uh, especially for the Jews. They, they, they pr uh, prided themselves in, in being purebred this, that, or the other, in a sense. They, they, they prided themselves on that. And for the Messiah, there were three prominent people the Bible describes that he would have to come from. And starting with, with first and foremost, the Messiah uh, would come through, of course, Father Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, the beginning, the birth of the nation of, of, of the Hebrews of Israel. Father Abraham, Genesis 12, 3. God, first promise recorded to Abraham, says, I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those who curses you, him who curses you. And notice, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How is that going to happen? Well, looking at the New Testament, we know that's through Jesus. That Jesus, the line of the Messiah, would ultimately begin and start uh, here with Abraham in its significance. It was going to be a Jew. The Messiah was going to come to the line of Abraham. Now, second to that, he, he wasn't just to be a Hebrew or someone from the line of Abraham, but second to that, you can note it down, he was to be related, he was to be from the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Judah. The Messiah was to, to come from the line of the tribe of Judah, which would then be the tribe that the kings would come from. Genesis 49, verse 10, this is prophesied about Jacob being on his deathbed, uh, begins to prophesy and bless over his sons. And when he gets to Judah, he says that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Now, what's being said here? Well, the scepter, the scepter is the concept of, of, a, of a monarch, of someone that is a one-person government, like we see what will happen with the kings. Uh, but 
obviously what we will see ultimately with Jesus. And it says, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. This is not a reference to a place, but a person. We believe a reference to the Messiah. You see, Jacob, you can note it down, on his deathbed, made this prophetic prediction around 1400 BC at the end of his life, meaning 1,400 years before Christ was born, that he said that the scepter would not depart, whether that was not with the death of the kings, but that there would be a ruler always from the tribe of Judah, okay? Now, not only was he to come through Abraham, the line of Judah, but he had to be a direct descendant of someone else. Does anyone know who I'm going to talk about next? Go ahead and say it out loud. David, David exactly. David, 2 Samuel 7:16 is only one of many promises and verses in the Old Testament regarding the fact that he would be a direct descendant of David himself. 2 Samuel 7:16 and your house and your kingdom says God shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established. What does it say? Forever. Now, this prophecy both had a near and a far fulfillment. Both in Solomon, he would then take David's throne, but ultimately there would be a far fulfillment, which would be Jesus. This is called, if you're taking notes, and these are big things, but I I hope that they are seeds that are planted in your heart. Whenever you study prophecy, Oftentimes, you'll come across what is called a double reference, a double reference, or the double reference principle. This is the principle that when God was speaking to David, there was both a near and a far fulfillment, meaning it was directly fulfilling to Solomon, but then the New Testament confirms and we see clearly, oh, there was a double fulfillment to that prophetic word that was spoken. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes I'll read through something in the Old Testament. I would never think that that'd have a New Testament tie or a connection. And then you read through the New Testament. We'll look at one of them later. And you'd be like, I would have never seen that. But the New Testament makes it clear that there was that connection. And that's why we're, we're thankful uh, for the New Testament to be able to underlock, unlock and Uh, understand, of course, the Old Testament. That's why when I talk to students about Bible reading, I'll always encourage them to read the New Testament first. Because if you start with the old without the new, you're going to be like those before the time of Jesus. You're not going to know things. But when you have the lens of the New Testament and you go back and read the old, oh man, the connections, it starts to make sense. And so if you've never read the complete 27-book New Testament, guess what you should read before you start reading the old? Finish the new. Go from Matthew to Revelation before you even look at the old. Now you can do what you want, but I encourage you, start there, and things will start making a whole lot more sense in the old. Now, additional to the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, you should be turned there, We also have one recorded at the end of Luke. And in both cases, both of Jesus's parents, Mary and Joseph, came from the line of Abraham, from the line of Judah, and the line of David. So that Jesus inherits the royal blood through Mary, 
and the royal right from his earthly father, Joseph. It's both, and it's an amazing, genius plan of God. All right, secondly, the Savior's birth. Not only was the Savior's line, family talked about, but the Savior's birth. And I'm sure this is one that you are aware of. Now, as I mentioned before, the book of Matthew is very helpful by directly quoting the Old Testament when something is being fulfilled. It's really cool. You read through the first two chapters of Matthew, and there are those moments where Matthew commentates for us. He says, hey, this is what took place with Jesus, and this is what that event is fulfilling in the Old Testament. This is because out of the four Gospels, Matthew is specifically written in a way to Jews, to people who would be familiar and know the Old Testament as to prove that Jesus really was the Messiah. Now, in reference to the birth of Jesus, Matthew cited a specific prophecy from Isaiah made more than 700 years earlier, okay? So what we're about to read, Matthew 1, verses 22 and 23, it's a quotation from the book of Isaiah, 700 years earlier was prophesied by the prophet Isaiah. So we'll read Matthew, and then we'll look at the verse in the book of Isaiah. You guys good? All right, this is, this is good stuff. I don't know how many junior high ministries talk about Bible prophecy, so this is, this is good. Matthew 1, verse 22 says, So all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Now, as you can see up on the screen, Isaiah 7:14 is where Matthew is drawing this conclusion. And this verse, it indicates to us two things about the Christ, the Savior. He will be conceived miraculously and not randomly. Meaning this, there's a lot of people that are born every day. There would be something specially unique. That's why they call it a sign. Do you guys see that? So you might have some people in your life trying to tell you at some point that the word virgin there doesn't actually mean a virgin, but it just means a younger girl. And they have a hard time believing in what is called the miraculous conception, is the fact that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb. And they don't want to believe the miraculous. And so they say, well, that's not actually what it prophesied. Or Jews who don't believe in Jesus will say things along the line. Well, in Hebrew, the word virgin doesn't actually mean that. You don't have to know Hebrew. You just got to read the verse. Listen, if it said, therefore, the Lord will give him you, you a sign. This is how you know who the Messiah is going to be. Behold, the girl, imagine if it just said, the woman shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Is that a sign? No, it's not. People are born every day. How are you going to know which one is which? But if there's a virgin, if there's someone who have not done what you need to do to be able to have a child, yet has a child, we got something on our hands here. We have a sign. And this is a sign. And it's the miraculous. But not only that, we're told that his name will be Emmanuel. 
Is Jesus' name Emmanuel? No, it's not. We don't call him, you know, we don't say, you know, Jesus Emmanuel Christ. It's not like his middle name. But what does it mean, right? It means God with us. It would be his characteristic. It wouldn't be his name. It would be who he is, God with us. Now, this is interesting. Many people think, based upon Matthew 1, Isaiah Seven, uh, Isaiah chapter seven, that this could have been what was hinted at at the beginning. Check out Genesis 3.15. This is after Adam and Eve, they sin. God has a talking to with each one of them personally. And to the woman and to the woman alone, Jesus, uh, not Jesus, God, the father says this, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, Sorry, this is not to the woman. This is to Satan. And between your seed and her seed, descendants, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, this is the first mention of the gospel in the Bible. But some believe that why doesn't it say uh, human, the, the human seed or mankind? No, it specifically just talks about the woman. Why? Well, maybe it's a hint to the virgin birth. Maybe it's a hint to the fact that man would have nothing to do with the birth of the coming savior, of the one who would ultimately crush the head of the serpent. Well, it's an interesting thing to think about for sure. Now, the storyline continues a couple chapters later. You guys know this, Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7, another uh, famous Christmas passage. Two chapters later, after the virgin birth prophecy, says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now, do you see where it says that a child will be born? This is to emphasize his humanity, right? For unto us, a child is born. He's going to become a baby. He's going to be born. But notice unto us, a son is given. This is to emphasize the unique gift of God that God gave his son to us. Remember, this is all Old Testament stuff. Now, I don't know if you notice in my reading, but on the screen and in the Bible, it says wonderful and the New King James Version puts a comma. I don't think that comma should be there. It's a wonderful counselor. Uh, those, those words go together just like mighty God. There's, there's two aspects. It's, it's Hebrew, uh, a way of writing, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. Now, don't think about like God the father. When it says that Jesus or the Messiah will be the everlasting father, it means that he'll be the father of eternity or the father of time. It's the fact that the son, the child, will be born uh, and will be the source of eternal life. Doesn't that sound like Jesus? And of course, he'll be the Prince of Peace. Now, some of this has not yet been fulfilled. The, 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 the part that's not fulfilled is the fact that he's established his, his government here on earth. And so with this, it both 
points to his first coming and his future second, okay? So Savior's family, the Savior's birth, and finally, the Savior's location. The Savior's location. Birthplace, upbringing, and even more. There are three places in Matthew chapter 2. So we're going to move on to chapter 2 as we uh, keep going in this. And in Matthew 2, there are three places prophesied that Jesus will be. One that he'll be born, one that he'll be called out of, and one that he will live and grow up in. Okay? Now, the first place should come to mind is, of course, where? Bethlehem, right? Bethlehem, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Now, while Matthew in chapter 2, he tells us that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Luke gives us the why he was born there. If you look at the Luke account, we find out the why. And, and And the reality is Jesus really should have been born in Nazareth. However, in the providence and plan of God, you guys know the story, Caesar Augustus called a what? A census. He called a counting. He called a counting of everybody in the world, meaning you were supposed to go where you were born. And because, uh, not necessarily just where you were born, but where your family was from. And Joseph and Mary being related to David, David, of course, we know from the book of 1 Samuel, where did he grow up? Bethlehem, right? That, that's why it's called the city of David, because that's where he was from. You know how like when someone gets famous and then like their high school that they went to is like known for like, you know, they have like pictures of the person who got famous. Okay, it's kind of like that, city of David, uh, which was of course Bethlehem. Now, the prophet Micah, if you're taking notes, predicted this. Uh, about 750 years before it came to pass. 750 years, Micah 5.2 says, but you, Bethlehem, uh, Bethlehem Epaphrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Now, have you guys ever wondered why that secondary uh, title is there, Bethlehem Epaphrathah. So that was because at this time in Israel, there was also a Bethlehem in the north. And so it was to distinguish even specifically which Bethlehem that it was. And in order to do that, people would then know, okay, it wasn't the Bethlehem in the north. We know exactly where we should look. And so now going back to Matthew, he fills us in on, on kind of that this was something able to know beforehand. So Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, look in your Bibles. Uh, we won't read it for the sake of time, but this is where the wise men show up. It's a couple years later. Jesus is no longer just a baby, but he's an infant. And we're told, right, the wise men come, they come to Herod, and they come to the people of Israel, and they say, hey, uh, you guys got a king. Like, where, where, where is he? Where is he at? We saw the star. And of course, then Herod goes to the, the religious leaders and the chief priests, and he says, hey, that king that you guys talk about that's going to come, the Messiah, where is he going to be born? And so interesting to me that they knew. Look, look there in verse 5. 
It says, so they said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, and they, then they even quote Micah 5.2. They knew, but it's almost like they didn't care. They knew, but they, they didn't go. They send the wise men to go. Now, it's, it's, it's certainly interesting. It shows the, the blindness and the, the selfishness of, of their own hearts. But Bethlehem was a place that he was to be born. Now, this was not necessarily known because what we're about to get to in a couple, uh, two, two locations from now, where did Jesus grow up? Nazareth. Nazareth, right. So people most likely assumed that's why they called him Jesus of they didn't call him Jesus of Bethlehem, but yet the Savior was to be born in Bethlehem. But remember, they kept such good records that years later, when Jesus shows up on the scene claiming to be the Messiah, what should they have done? They should have gone to the temple records. They had a census. It was recorded that Jesus was born and where he was born, and they could have seen that it was even this Jesus who was not only grew up in Nazareth, but also was born in Bethlehem. Quite interesting. Now, secondly, the place that people don't often talk about is Egypt. Do you know that there was one time that Jesus left the country of Israel? Just once. And it was when he was an infant. And really, it was Joseph and Mary who took him there. If you read Matthew chapter 2, look in your Bibles, verse 13 through 15. It says, now when they had departed, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, arise, take the young child, no longer a baby, and his mother, flee to Egypt and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, out of Egypt, I have called my son. Now he quotes this Hosea chapter 11 or verse one. Now I gotta be honest with you guys. If you were to open up to the book of Hosea and, and not been familiar with Matthew, you would have never made this connection. This is what is something that's called a symbolic type of fulfillment or a typological fulfillment, meaning it's only in the hindsight Matthew would be able to record for us that, that Hosea was talking about the Messiah, of course, in the, in the reality of God the Father having a son. But Egypt's kind of one of those just kind of random fulfillments, but it's there nonetheless. All right, third and finally, the last location that we're looking at tonight is Nazareth. And the Bible talked about all three of these, Bethlehem, Egypt, and in a way, talked about Nazareth, okay? So eventually he's called out of Egypt and they head home, okay? Look in your Bibles. You saw them open? Yes, look at Matthew chapter two. Now verses, starting in verse 19 to the end of the chapter. Now, when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life were dead. Then he rose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that uh, Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, man, he's having a lot of dreams. He turned aside into the region of Galilee and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth. 
that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, something to notice regarding this fulfillment compared to the others is I want you to look at that last verse in chapter 2. It's going to take some, some, some thinking here to, to get this. Look at the last verse. Notice it says, which was spoken by the prophets. Is that singular or plural? Plural. Meaning he doesn't make a quotation from one prophet. He, yes, there's a quotation, but he's saying that this is from multiple prophets. It seems to be that Matthew here, in a sense, is summarizing some Old Testament indications from multiple prophets. And in this case, Matthew isn't quoting a direct prophecy, okay? Different than Bethlehem, this one's different. In fact, the words Nazareth or Nazarene aren't even found in the Old Testament. What many people think is that Matthew is alluding to a general type of uh, word that speaks uh, about the Messiah. Uh, one of the, the words in Hebrew is uh, netzer, which has thoughts to be a play on words regarding this word Nazarene. Okay, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. There are a handful of other verses that speak about the Messiah in this way. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. That's talking about David. David's dad is Jesse. And a branch shall grow out of his roots. Now, do you guys see that word branch? So that word in Hebrew, it, it means kind of like a, an offshoot from a branch. You know how, how you have like a tree and then you have branches and then like the branches have branches? Okay, this is talking about the branches, branches. Now, I know it's, it's, it's kind of weird, but for the Jewish mind, this would have been something that was understood. And it would have been related to the fact that the Bible speaks of the Messiah coming from a place of low regard, of low regard. Um, we were told in another place, Isaiah 53, verses 2 through 3. This is uh, one of the biggest passages about the coming Messiah. Notice what it says, and, and look at the wording. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root of dry ground. Okay, so there's kind of that, that branch uh, words, uh, kind of a illustration. And then notice what the Bible says. This is about the coming Messiah. This is how he would be. That they wouldn't recognize him by his beauty. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus wasn't this incredible looking man. He was extremely average for a reason, for a reason. He, it's not that he was ugly, but it's not that he was beautiful. That people wouldn't see him and be attracted to him because of his looks, but because of his nature. He is despised and rejected by men. He's known as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. You see, Nazareth was a place that was looked down upon. It was an unwalled, unprotected town with a bad reputation. Now, I don't want you to say anything out loud because maybe someone lives here, uh, lives there from here, but there are some places that have bad reputations. Nazareth was one of the worst. That's why in John 1, when Jesus comes 
and begins to meet some of the disciples. This is why Nathaniel said to Philip, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It was a, it was a, it was a city, an insignificant place with a small and bad reputation. Yet, listen, this is where Jesus grew up. This is where he matured into adulthood and then would carry on his ministry. He was known as Jesus of where? That was not in, on the surface level, that was not a boast. That was not like, oh, you know, like it'd be, it would be kind of a boast if you were like, you know, I'm, I'm Joel from like Newport Beach. I guess that's, I mean, I like the beach, so that, that'd be cool. I was born in Pomona, so I, I, I don't know, you know, but, but that would be cool. I don't know why you're clapping. Stop clapping. Now, by those who hated him, they also called him Jesus of Nazareth. It was a put down, yet it's really interesting because in the Bible, Jesus seems to always wear it as a badge of honor. You know, in uh, Acts 22, last verse I want to share with you guys, verse 8, this is that that moment when Paul is encountering Jesus on the road to Damascus. And notice what Jesus refers to himself as. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. This was something that was not a badge of honor, yet Jesus wore it like one. That even as the risen Lord sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, This is how Jesus wants us to relate to him, that Jesus said, I have been where you are and maybe even lower. See, now even in heaven, he is known from where he grew up. He uses what the world would despise and call foolish. It's what Jesus wants to be known as. See, tonight as we come to a time of worship and we think about Christmas and we think about Jesus coming, I want you to understand that Jesus is near tonight. Jesus is relatable. The Bible says that we have a high priest that can sympathize with our weaknesses. Listen, he knows what it's like to be human. He knows what it's like to be lonely. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to hurt. This is our great God and Savior, and he came for us. See, Christmas is a visible demonstration of God's love. His crucifixion was the cost of his love, and his resurrection is the victory of it. So why do we make such a big deal about Christmas? There's no other month where we, we decorate, where we, where we put effort in. You know, you're going to see the courtyard. I think there's cookies and stuff down there. I don't know if it starts this, this Wednesday. I think it's next Wednesday. Sorry. But for the family night, like you're going to see the church go all out. Why is that? Is it just for the presents? Is it just for the fun stuff? No. It's because our God, our sent Savior, our born Messiah is worthy to be celebrated and praised. Amen. Father God, we do just worship you. We give you our attention. We give you our focus because it is amazing. Lord, the the coming of Christ, the fact that Jesus, God most high, the beginning and the end, the alpha, the omega, stepped into time to which he created, stepped into space to which he created and, and became 
a physical being, that he still is to this day. Jesus, we thank you that, that you haven't now stripped yourself of, of where you were from. You would still say, I am Jesus of Nazareth, which reminds us, Lord, that you know what it's like to be one of us, yet you made it through without sin. You made the choice of what it was to obey God in everything. And so, God, we can now look to you for strength. When we pray, we're not praying to a distant, far God, but we're praying to a God who knows what it's like to inhabit our skin, who knows what it's like to be one of us, that you're not ashamed to call us your brethren. It's amazing. And so, God, we fix our attention on you, the God of heaven, the God of Christmas. And Jesus, we love you. And we pray this in, in Jesus' name. Amen. 